Well, guys, welcome to The Catch-Up. It's our weekly news show where we dive headfirst in the food story, making the most news on the internet. I'm Eli, a food beast, and uh, we have Steve Bramucci of Uproxx. Thank you for joining us again. Thanks for having me. It's fun. It was fun last time, and I was like, I want to come back. Yeah. (laughs) And when I told you we're going to talk about this story that's been making the waves of a piece of real fried chicken that was made without killing an animal. Right. Right? And and so we're going to be on the topic of lab-grown meat because I have no idea about it, and I want to learn today. I feel like a lot of people want to learn. So you brought a friend. I did. I brought Evan Marks. He's, this is my intro of him. He's because I've been promising the two of you that I was going to slay him today. I feel like I'm going at him hard. And so my intro of him is I covered ecology in Orange County uh, before I started Up Rocks for about seven years. And I wrote about a bunch of charities, different charity every single month. I had a, a column. And virtually every single time I just got so jaded and I just felt like a lot of them were kind of like fronts for people to pursue a passion for a little while and support their lifestyle and then like dodge out and it just it really depressed me about the state of small grassroots charities and I came across Evan's charity I've probably written about them 20 times and they are absolutely unimpeachable like it's such a neat thing that he does it's called the Ecology Center and I've been to a bunch of their events and I've been down to their center I was at their center just last week as far as food ecology goes, I've never met someone who can speak with so much authority. So he's a perfect guy to have on your show. Set me up. <laughs> yeah. With that said, I'm going to go at him today. You're I'm presenting him as an authority hard. so you could cut him down. What is he's, this? And it's set up. You guys are facing each other. This was good, not meant. I'm a generalist. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. Well. Thanks, Steve. Honored to be here. Thanks, Eli. Was that accurate? Was the intro accurate? I'll take it. That's very flattering. Yeah. That's Steve's gift. Yeah. <laughs> He's a flatterer by nature. The, you two are easy guys to big up, but but I do feel like that's Evan's thing. You know, I, I asked someone who had a failing charity about Evan before I had ever met him, and the guy said, Evan Marks sets realistic goals and then knocks them out of the park. And I was like 24 years old at this time, and I was like, that's probably like a pretty good way to do work. Yeah. <laughs> like, I want to try and do that as a writer. Like, yeah. maybe just set realistic goal instead of being like, here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to be like, here's exactly what I can do, and I'm going to exceed it. You know? That's a great way to live life. Right. That's a great way to live life. Too many people are shooting for the stars. <laughs> you, need to shoot, you need to shoot for a two-story house. Get the two-story <laughs> house and then go a little higher, and everyone's like, damn. <laughs> Agreed. So... The story that we're talking about this week, uh, both Food Beast and Uproxx wrote about it. Um, a bit different takes, but um, we there's a company called Memphis Meats, and they announced the world's first chicken that was produced entirely without an animal, which actually I'm learning it's not entirely without an animal. At one point, they had to use a animal, an animal, an animal to, to create it. So it's synthetic proteins, meat grown in labs from stem cells. I mean, do you... Give me a more science. Is that, is, is no, that science? Yeah, I think you hit it. Yeah. Um, and so they invited a group of taste testers to a kitchen in San Francisco to sample the chicken. I think they made duck as well. Um, but what's cool is they actually served the chicken kind of fried up. And the feedback was that it was almost spot on in terms of flavor. The texture was a little spongy from what? A little spongy, but every single. 
I didn't taste it. Every single, although they've read my article and they promised to be sending some for the next round, but every single taster did say um, that they were that they're the, that they would get it again. They would get it again. They're all unanimous on that. So got it. And I'm so, excited to get to break this up in a little bit. I know. I know. I see. <laughs> I'm confused. To be <laughs> okay. What's what's confusing immediately? Was that enough setup? We should set up. Is that? I, I think that's a great setup. This, this is a conversation that is going to be, in my opinion, and, and the whole assertion of my article was, this is going to be a massive conversation in the next 10 years. And I have a bunch of reasons why I think it's massive, but my article is also full of, of quotes with Evan the one time I brought this up. Now, to paint a picture for your, your, your listeners, and then we'll toss to him, Evan is the nicest dude in the world. Like, he is the nicest person and does not get aggressive. The one time I talked to him about synthetic meat, it was in an interview with him and another chef and his eyes kind of lit up and his body tightened <laughs> and he did not like what I was talking about. And so he's the perfect, he's the perfect foil here. And I, I used him as a foil in my article too. So I saw oh, that you're, you're using him welcome. as a prop. Yeah. You're always welcome. <laughs> this is crazy. This, yeah. I this, mean, yeah. the thing that, well, I don't exactly know where to start other than the thing that got me a little bit uneasy was a year or two ago and still gets me kind of like the top question is why are we separating from nature? You know, I think every, all of our world's problems can be solved in a garden. So why would we want to move away from that? And then the other question I come to is, are we talking about protein or are we talking about flavor? Because both of those things can be accomplished in many ways outside of a laboratory in very holistic ecological ways. So I guess we should define the, the playing field here so we can then start breaking it apart. Okay, that's that's pretty good so you far. You see how that's my dude good. drops knowledge? <laughs> the super knowledge <laughs> drop. Um, well, I'm just setting the, the context, the yeah. parameters, you know? Well, so even, I think you yeah. should set the parameters. So well, even, before we, get into even before we set up the parameters, I think for, for most people, they still don't understand how the hell this meat came into being. I think there's an idea that like it was grown in a test tube or in a Petri dish. That's not enough for, for me to understand. And so we asked Costa, um, Costa, I'm going to keep saying stuff and you tell me if I'm wrong, right? So based on what Costa told me, uh, they take muscle cells, muscle tissue cells from an animal that you want to essentially create that meat of, right? So... You take that, you put it into what could be a Petri dish, but the idea is you put it into this vat where it cultures and it just creates this meat and it'll, it'll essentially just look like the ground meat version or the uh, the raw meat version of whatever animal you're doing. So in this case, it was chicken. Um, so it doesn't, from what I understand, does not hurt the animal. Maybe. I mean, we don't, we don't know. We weren't in the room. We weren't in the room. And we we're not paid to make those big decisions. Let's assume maybe that it's a little less intrusive than killing an animal. If we could, if we could go there, maybe. Yeah, we can go there. Animal's still alive, um, and then it replicates. Right now, it's currently extremely expensive. Obviously, this is a very new process, and so that's that's how that's the science behind it. Um, yeah, with stem, stem cells. Stem right? cells. Stem cells. I mean, for Lab me, grown in, meat grown in a petri dish is is the easiest way to say it. It's just close to that, right? It's really big petri dishes, essentially. Basically, how big do you think they are? I don't know. I don't, know. I don't have the specs on that on hand quite yet. <laughs> They're big. 
Okay, so now, but there's there's a lot of questions. Sure. There's a lot of philosophical I also think the framework, too, that, which is that our current animal production systems are super inhumane and super in- ecological. Is it, that's fair to say? Yeah. Right, so this is looking at how do we, how would we eat, consume meat in a way that might be, um, that might fit our ethics or might fit into our paradigm or, or whatever it might, you know, what, what are we talking about here is, is dimensional, but it's, um, we're trying to move away from this kind of the CAFO idea, which is the high intensity of animals, slaughterhouses, crazy antibiotics, GMO feed, like really bad, crazy, nasty stuff that we just consume every day. So we're looking at alternatives, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So this becomes an alternative to, to that and, um, and it's an interesting one, that's for sure. And we could generally agree, I feel, that there's an idea that we want to get away from the mass slaughterhouse and the, you know, the shit that you see, the, the food ink style slaughtering of, of animals, right? Like, yeah. yeah but so I think we're all on that same page. It's sure. like that that's not tenable for our society. Yeah. What's pent up in you right now, Steve? No, the, what's pent up is simply, it's so funny because I am pent up. Uh, what's pent up is simply that Evan is so charming that I agree with him. I came in with all this heat. I've been sitting in traffic and I just wanted to spit fire. I'm a little bit like if uh, if you were dating a super, super attractive person and they did something that really made you mad and you couldn't stay mad. Like we shouldn't have had him in. We should have had him phone in. He's so sweet. I just feel like I'm, I'm trying to stay angry. That's what's pent up. Well, let's see. I mean, let's say lab-grown meat cuts down our environmental cost by 90% compared to factory farm meat. Right. Right? So does that make you feel some type of way? That In a good way? In a bad way? Yeah. So I'm, I'm a huge proponent of this. Okay. And my basic point that I lay out in the article and the reason why I kind of attack this this uh, year-old quote that Evan gave me, which is probably a little disingenuous of me to use a year-old quote from him, but um, but the reason why I attack it is because what is that quote? Yeah, what is that quote? Yeah. <laughs> that quote for you guys right here. <laughs> when did I say? <laughs> Agriculture and animals are synonymous. Fabricating a reality where an animal is extracted from the system creates an idea that humans are in charge of the planet rather than the stewards of it. That's a good one. He would have confirmed that. Like, we don't have to. He still co-signs. He still co-signs that. I've known Evan for a long time. I didn't have to call him and be like, you still down with this. And then he says, we know how to farm and manage animals in a really regenerative way. It's an idea we can return to right now and rally around. Which I think. That gets me excited. Yeah. Yeah. Here's, here's, I guess my problem that I keep running into is like what I'm hearing sometimes from ecologists or people who are interested in the environment or really more than even Evan is chefs. Like chefs over and over told me when I asked about, about lab grown meat, they said it's unnatural. And here's why I really real recoil from that. I also consider myself an ecologist and I feel like we have made the planet unnatural. Because the planet is meant to sustain from every study, from all, from all the statistics and metrics we have. The planet it would do a really good job at sustaining 2 billion people. We have seven. So uh, my basic belief and where I think it differs from Evans is that I think it is going to require unnatural technologies 
to solve our problems. On a micro scale, I think that going back to organic farming and going back to small farms and going back to these kind of very natural artisan type uh, agrarian setups can work. But I think it can work for people who have money and people who want to spend some of that money on food. For the average person who is eating McDonald's four times a week, not because they love McDonald's, but because that is the setup that best fits their budget, those people are going to need unnatural solutions in my mind. And this is one of them. Like I, I, The world, the future that I see, if we don't have a massive population decrease, which is what I would advocate, <laughs> if, if we don't, then the world that I see is that there will be 20-story tall, hopefully more nature actually, but but 20-story tall vertical farms in the Midwest that are all filled with vertical hydroponic setups so that they lose no water. Mm-hmm. And 20-story tall vertical farms filled with fake meat proteins too. But a- and then more land given back to nature instead of people fighting to cut down our forests to build farms or to give them to cows. So I agree that there's nothing natural with factory farming either, whether that's vegetables or animals. Yeah. That's not natural, right? To put nature into a, into a conveyor belt. And so how do we go back to nature? And what's, I'm sure truth lies somewhere in between, right? So it's, it's not one technology is not going to save the world. You know, from my world of ecological design, we're in the same principle, which is do is let's minimize our footprint, maximize ecology, maximize nature so that there's abundance, not just for us. It's not only humans that live on this planet. Mm. But in my paradigm, I like to imagine a future where there's an ecosystems everywhere. We don't no longer live in the confines of a factory or a linear lifestyle where you know, we're totally disconnected from everyone else. We're disconnected from nature and there's no community. You know, the, the model that we're pushing at the Ecology Center is that it looks quite a bit different and we don't know where the threshold is. We don't know what the, when we've, we haven't yet expand, you know, exhausted all of our resources. We haven't exhausted all of our land. We haven't actually integrated very many unique ecological principles at scale to see if we can push this, right? So again, what the future looks like to me is that our neighborhoods are filled with fruit trees and that we grow vegetables at some scale in our backyard and it's for sure in our community centers and our schools and our farmers are being supported in a, through a community and that's called a food shed and all of a sudden it's a dynamic relationship and there's local economy and some of these the fabric of this stuff sort of starts to feel like we're back in the 50s when the economy was thriving and people were you know there was a little bit maybe of this quality of life thing because there's it's anti-technology that's not that's not the perfect picture but i guess that's kind of what i'm promoting as as a as a scenario and there's a lot of challenges to that there's a lot of you know, realities to that that aren't possible in 2017, 2050, two, three, you know, whatever it might be. But I guess it's like, well, what does it look like for us to think about abundance as us being a part of nature, whether continue the segregation of humans and nature? And that's kind of where I, this, I, there's, I'm not, there's, I have known nothing about this technology, just so that we're on the record. And this technology may be very interesting as a solution. Is it the, is it the solution that's going to save us? Of course not. There's no right. one solution. Right. Right. What does the paradigm look like that gets us rebooted back to being humans on planet Earth? I don't know if this is the right, this is the on-ramp for me, but it's, uh, 
It's definitely part of a series of creative solutions that look at how do we reduce our impact. And I think that it definitely starts to move in that direction. I mean, is there any benefit in your eyes, Ev, of this this essential stem cell lab grown meat direction? So on a on a I think we can agree on a lot of things on the micro level of making a lot of general changes towards sustainability. Some would argue this lab grown meat in and of itself could lead to sustainability or at least in a direction and it might end up, you know, a hundred years, 200 years down the line, stray us off course, which I kind of lean more in that direction. For the record, I think lab grown meat is weird as fuck. I think it's incredible. I think it's really weird. I don't know, like, I appreciate what it's trying to do, but I also am morally and, and it just confuses the hell out of me about where we draw the line on I mean, I'm the guy that like, I'll support science. I also, it scares the shit out of me. So the idea of if I could, if I had the wherewithal to understand it all on a very macro level um, and understand where, you know, where our resources are best spent in terms of should we be spending on how to make, you know, how does everyone have a cool farm and sustain and, and build up your own you know, your own cow, you're like, where am I going to get my Wagyu beef in the future? Is it going to be through a, through a, a laboratory? I, I don't know. It, I think it's, it's probably all of the above. And I think what's interesting to me where I started earlier, where it's, is it a protein conversation or is it a flavor conversation? Because you can, you can basically create anything out of plant cellulose, right? We see plastic wrappers out of all sorts of plants, not just corn. But basically you can take plant cellulose and turn it into many different things. You can take... If it's a protein conversation, what's interesting as a, to plant a seed is that we can grow legumes, which regenerate soil, and put value to them, not just allow them to be a cover crop. All different types of legumes <coughs> Sorry. that put nitrogen in the soil, build, uh, you know, regenerate, put carbon back into our soil, challenge, solve big challenges that, that we're faced as humans, and as a byproduct with the, those proteins, turn it into meat. Right. So I think that the conversation is 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 somewhat fluid and that it's yeah. yeah i mean i think it's probably but it probably is a flavor thing you know like we, but we're smart humans are pretty smart i mean yeah humans are smart yeah. but i'll tell you i something. mean you're sitting in front of a computer you're like <clears throat> i think someone was like i think it's like we just want to have a thing where we can like communicate with or whatever <laughs> they figured it out you know <laughs> here here's what i found Years ago, I, I did all these articles on green surfboards, totally off of food for a second. Okay. Did all these articles on ecological surfboards. And I got so excited, and I would get so excited about a new product, and I would write about this guy who's creating a new product. And then all of them would fail. And the fascinating thing was they would not fail because they didn't work. They wouldn't fail because they broke down. They would fail because they were literally one tick off of perfect. Mm. And so it's like the reason why cashew cheese doesn't convert anyone is not because we're averse to eating cashews and calling it cheese. It's because it just isn't quite good enough to bridge the uncanny valley. And, and with that said, it can be somehow. It can, mm. I, there's a place up in Portland, Oregon that I go to. They make a cashew cheese mac and cheese and it might as well be like it's exquisite. It's yep. exquisite. I feel like 
if I can, and they've opened three restaurants in the past year for a reason, right? And it's probably that it's mac and cheese. cheese. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> like, cause no one else can do that with this product. Um, but you know, and so, so I do think it's about people wanting that flavor of me. It seems to me that if you were to make a chart, the arc of us saying my palate is developing and I can do without meat and the arc of us saying, wow, we need to have a lot of cows because there's a lot more people and they all like meat. Those two things are about to crash into each other. And this one, this one of people giving up meat is moving much slower than this one, which is spiking. Sure. And so because of that, like the idea of, of for me of like us converting people to not being into meat and getting, getting used to other proteins is another little stopgap. It's another nice piece of a bigger system, I guess, is what Evan's kind of... Evan is a systems it, thinker, which I like. It's, but it is a series of solutions, you know, it's, and there's no one-size-fits-all. Let's sure. agree on that, right? So portion size is probably part of the conversation, and eating less meat might be part of the conversation, and substituting proteins where we can is part of the conversation. I'm just... I come from such a different perspective. You guys are in the world... I, I literally like I'm a bioregional person like I eat what's grown in my backyard and you know I celebrate the seasons and it's like a really simple and you know, that's um, you know it's 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 so I don't assume that I need something because I want it right and so am I, you know is that real reality for like large scale you know for for the, this nation i don't know but it's i'd like to think optimistically that we can recalibrate but i think we, if you're thinking yeah. of two extremes of you either have all meat cuz the the way for me to comprehend this is that we either live in a world where it's 100% lab grown meat or we live in a world where it's not right and it's almost 0% and then i fear kind of what you're getting at like if it, what will never be translated into lab grown meat is the idea of the essence of that animal, right? Like the idea that it was maybe if it's Wagyu beef, like it was massaged in Japan for, for eight hours a day and treated with the utmost of respect. And then when it was cordial to do so, it was killed and then put on my plate as a beautiful, delicious piece of meat. I don't get any of the fat of the land. I don't get any of that when it's cultured and shit, maybe it is, maybe we do, but you're saying that it will, because there's some great current substitutes for vegan substitutes, plant-based substitutes for some of my favorite things, like the burger, the the Impossible Burger. The I was hoping Veggie Grill would show up because they have a pretty damn good burger. I think it's the Beyond Burger is what they use. Yeah, yeah so <coughs> Beyond Meat. And if an In-N-Out is a 10 out of 10 burger for me, I swear to God, the Veggie Grill Burger is an 8 out of 10. For me. I mean, the Impossible the impossible Burger is a good example. Do you know what the Impossible no. Burger... Okay, so the Impossible Burger... And it, it, it creates an interesting and fascinating case study, right? The Impossible Burger is this burger that was that was designed to look exactly like a beef burger. And the beet juice bleeds. And, and the beet juice bleeds out, <laughs> yeah. And it's actually not even... I thought it was the beet juice, but it's something else, right? No, the Impossible Burger is not beet juice. It's something called beet. glycemoglobin. So it's a protein derived from legumes that does the same thing as right legumes. It's legumes. I'm with the legumes. It's the yeah. So so, but the fascinating <laughs> thing about this, and, and it's so funny because when this product was announced and when it was being buzzed about, when it was about at the same stage that this chicken, this lab grown chicken, is at now, 
chefs said the same thing they told me about lab-grown beef. They, they said the same thing, which is, listen, everybody, we don't need to imitate meat. I like vegetables. Every chef says this. I like vegetables. I want to represent them as they really are. Guess what? Like that burger is the hottest thing in America right now. The Impossible? The Impossible Where Burger. Where do you get it at? They literally can't. There's a couple restaurants now, but they, what did they commit the other day? 20 million in the next year? Um, yeah. So they committed to that. They committed to a thousand restaurants by the end of this year. Yeah. Only one in LA right now, Crossroads Kitchen Hollywood. Um, they're trying to get to roast. They want to produce 4 million burgers a year by the end of this year as well. That's their scalability. It's crazy. It's Americans crazy. love their burgers. What's yeah, but the deal? so this is a great example where everyone's like, every chef was like, we don't need to imitate meat. Uh, okay, but we want to eat it. <laughs> we want you to imitate it. And, yeah. and at the end of the day, like that to me is so petty. It's not a crime. And the interesting thing with this Impossible Burger is that so many food things, you know, the the remedies to problems, but you keep talking about Wagyu beef, right? So many food things, the remedies to problems start with the poor people who can't afford them, right? So if you were if you were poor in the 1950s in the United States, you would know all about this thing they called government cheese, which is the cheese that the government sent to people, particularly people on, on Native American reservations comes in a certain wrapper it's a it's a weird box everyone knows it right that cheese eventually became pretty much what we recognize as Velveeta today yeah I eat craft macaroni and cheese probably four days a week and I'm, I'm essentially you know celebrating this government cheese that that people have you know fond nostalgic memories of but also represented poverty for a lot of people right so people thought that this impossible burger might go that same route, that it might travel essentially from the communities that had the least resources towards the communities that had more. It's too expensive. Instead, to it's done the exact opposite. Every single that star chef, yeah. every single star chef wants to work with it. David Chang, who is, you know, clearly one of the most famous chefs in the country immediately, like became one of the first restaurants to sell it. Every single restaurant that sells it has a star chef attached to, yeah. And so it's really interesting to yeah. see how this one is traveling. Yeah. yeah. I want I want a McDonald's to adopt it. I mean that's that that would be baller. Yeah, but that's, you, that's but, cool. But there's there's a connotation to a star chef. Like what's cool is like for, as a foodie, a star chef is cool and you get to co-sign it. And but for even a food beast, whenever we hear star chef and when we hear someone that's culinary or cuisine in mind. It turns us off. It for us, it's like we don't really give a shit. You immediately turn it off. It's something that's not really accessible. That's not how you build ground up. You don't pick the dopest chef in the world to co-sign it. You like, how do you get it on? Because oh, great, I have to go to a restaurant that I can't afford to to try out this burger that should be really good for me or really sustainable or really or really positive. That's not. I don't know. I don't have a solution for it other than I hope McDonald's just takes it. Again, it's still at a price point that's too expensive. So we should. Maybe and to your case, like, are we funding the wrong things? Mm-hmm. Are we funding what, if plants are sustainable and all that? We, we should just go that route and sustain and, and get that price down so more brands can use it yeah. instead of fucking Carl's Jr. wasting their time and creating an all natural burger that's not all natural and still charging through the roof for it. So, yeah, I mean, I like I you quoted me earlier. I mean, I (laughs) you're getting quoted in a podcast you're actually on. (laughs) Lucky me. Um, 
you know, that animals are in, integral to a healthy agriculture. They always have been, and, and we lost that connection. So we compartmentalize animals and move them into a factory, and then we factory, factorized our food and mostly turned it into commodities. What does it look like for us to reconnect that pattern of animals and agriculture together? Animals and agriculture together. I mean, that's the interesting thing is I don't, I do believe that agriculture is a healing. I mean, we're politically effed right now, and it's the Midwest that is struggling financially, and um, but yet it's it's we consider that our agricultural center, and they're growing the wrong things, right? We're growing GMO products that are inedible that go to animals that are unedible right, in unhumane conditions. What if we just started thinking differently about things and started adding economics to the, to the category where it's not that, I don't, that's, food doesn't need to be free, right? Food doesn't need to be, you shouldn't buy a hamburger for 99 cents, right? Can we just agree that it's a human right and that we wanna get people to good quality food? We wanna be good stewards of the land and we wanna support communities all over the United States and all over the world that are growing food, but those communities are ideally growing food for their community. So that's, I think, where the healing of agriculture comes in is where the Midwest starts actually growing food for the Midwest, mm. right? We all actually can eat a little bit differently. We're such a big country, we should stop thinking of ourselves as unified. I'm just throwing something out, right? I'm spitballing here, but it's, it's interesting that our, our palate over here is so different than it is in other places. Like what if they had a bioregional cuisine and they grew for themselves and they find their own economic viability within their agriculture as opposed to think that they have to grow junk for and get junk for it, you know? Again, there's a tangent, but it's... Uh, no, I yeah. like that tangent and I like your tangent and I think that, they, that they're very copacetic. I mean, one of the things, and the reason I told that <coughs> surfboard story, sorry about the coughing. The reason I told that, told that surfboard story is because food is another thing where people are so weird about compromising. One thing I've seen, and I'm sure you guys have seen on Food Beast, is everyone wants, first everyone wanted food to be cheap. Like that was, that was our status, right? And then everyone wanted food to be ecological. So they say, okay, it needs to be locally grown. So let's take almonds, right? I want my almonds. I live in Southern California. I want my almonds grown in Southern California. Great. Southern California grows a lot of almonds. <laughs> Except that Southern California has a Mediterranean climate with 25 million people in a space that can supply water to 5 million people without extra resources. And almonds are one of the most water intensive crops on earth. So, so our demands are really high. And then we go, you know what? Almonds are a ripoff. <laughs> like we're asking for so much in this setting. And, and I think like, Actually, well, you know, it's so complex. I mean, the, the, we're growing basically the lion's share of almonds for the world with resources we don't have. And then we're probably importing the rest of them. You yeah. know what I mean? Like we just exchange resources because globalization, every word. It's when we think of the corporate state, like agriculture is is one of those. And so we get to, everyone gets to win because they're just moving coins around. Yeah. So the shipper wins and this, that, and who doesn't win is usually the earth, the farm labor. You know, and, and sometimes us, but it's that's a good example where it's like, can we, is it possible to think about a future where we grow sensibly for a population that's in proximity, you know, and then think that it's not infinite? You know, we might not get cashew cheese. Why? Because it's not the tropics. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like, let's let, let's let that become a special thing to the people that live in the tropics. Right. <laughs> 
But isn't that an ideal? That's an ideal situation. But then isn't tech there playing the tech card? Tech's there to help to create that. Right. Tech is going to come in and say, oh, Evan, interesting point about you saying people should be able to compromise. But guess what? No one wants to compromise. (laughs) So we will make that thing out of a random cell and then it's going to be like a cashew cheese party. Everyone's got some. <laughs> and I think like, I think that that's. Is like, that where we find joy though? I mean, I guess that's where I come back to, yeah. you know, you, the farmer's market thing. You guys go to the farmer's market. Sure. It's, it's great, right? I mean, right. No, farmer's market in my backyard or in a foreign country, they're all awesome, right? It's like, it's the heart and soul. And my farmer's market isn't, is actually really good, but some of them like around these parts are not that great because agriculture is not thriving. But when you go to a place, Guatemala or any, you name a country, Mexico or, you know, whatever. They're all beautiful because that's where like, that's where commerce happens. So the farmers bring things, the textile artists bring things. But what I'm saying is that going to the farmer's market is joyful. It's colorful, it's tasteful, and it's seasonal. And so... I guess part of the argument is is technology doesn't bring joy, right? We're going to realize that being on our cell phones all the time actually isn't very fun anymore. We lost all of our friends, right? And then we fabricated all of our food and we lost our appetite, right? It's not good anymore. We're not having fun anymore. And all of a sudden there's no more passion in this world. So what does it mean to be back as humans on this planet? Probably means uh, somewhere in between, you know. But it's the balance of imagine you were, uh, I mean, I, I love the, I love the, the story of being able to eat at a farmer's market and then keep it special to, you know, Thailand's farmer's market or a farmer's market in the Mideast, uh, the Middle East. But that's a that's a luxury for a lot of people. And so would you rather live a life where you say... Let's break that down, though. Sure. Why is it a luxury? So it's a... Yeah. It, the, the luxury to me is if I have the means to travel. No, say not even going on a trip. Like, okay. is a farmer's market a luxury? A farmer's market locally is not a luxury. Okay. It's, it, it makes sense. There should farmer I mean, market the, here. the farmer's market three blocks from here, you, if you want EBT, you can get twice your value for your buck. Sure. And yeah. let, me, let me rephrase. The, the, the luxury aspect, I'm not saying is it's expensive to go to a farmer's market locally. I think it's actually a great deal and it's, it has this weird connotation that it shouldn't have that it's expensive. It's not. You go to a farmer's market, there's fantastic deals, often very competitively to your local chain, whatever it may be. The idea that I think is a luxury is the idea of experiencing what a farmer's market in Peru would provide. Oh, you. I get that. Totally. That, that's what yeah. I mean. So if technology can help me, maybe just my means, I'll never be able to go to Peru. I hope that's not the case. I'll never get to go to Peru. Is there any halfway point of me being able to experience something from Peru because technology allowed that for me? Or the, the idea of avocado. I, sorry? The, yeah, the best technology in the world is a seed, right? So the Fuerte Avocado is like the number one avocado that you see in Peru. We have that technology here. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. We plant, I have a tree in my backyard. It's, it's like my favorite avocado. Yeah. And so technology needs to be a little bit wider reaching sure. in, our, in our awareness to what technology means. Look, at agriculture is, you, you know, 10,000-year-old 10, technology. I don't know. It must be more. But it's sophisticated, right? It's, it's literally every year or every season for the last 10,000 years we've been working on this technology. 
right? It's not like a few guys that are wealthy in Silicon Valley that are going to start out all of our world's problems. You know, it's, it's a little bit different context here. We're talking about humanity as a whole actually yeah. working towards the best. Yeah. I am going to listen to this podcast that we are on like seven times. By the way, has there ever been a better spinoff in the history of your podcast than you making this case for technology and Evan saying best technology on the planet is a seed? That was Dude, I'll stand by that. I there was like, you know, it's just my it's brain was exploding at that beautiful moment that it was the best technology. Well, because I go my visual, I've been to Peru in a farmer's market. Amazing. You, we import the textiles, but the plants, I mean, we grow those. I mean, every potato in the world came from Peru. Yeah. They just happen to do it way better. They still have 3,000 varieties of potato. Do you remember where you, you were know, as a child? Much more. <laughs> when you realized how plants worked? My mind was fucking blown. Well, it I still realized. is. I plant a seed at literally uh, regularly, and I'm like, this thing's gonna come up. It's gonna germinate, and I'm gonna have food. Yeah, it's, I think that I think I, you make a great point because yeah. I need to re reinvigorate myself with that. That like, oh shit, I just ate a whole watermelon. These are seeds that I just spit out through into the trash, or I could just put those seeds right back into the ground it's a and make more watermelons instead of hitting up my Albertsons. So it's like the gift that keeps on giving. So I get that. I think that's. If we can bring more inspiration to that, that's pretty fascinating. Um, but are there limitations to, um, you know, Costa keeps texting me uh, hydroponics. Uh, how do we feel about that? <laughs> because I'd love to talk about hydroponics. Let's run it. You do? I'd you, love to. You'd lo- oh, yeah. I, I'm totally. <laughs> let's I mean, run it. I first of all, someone. I mentioned hydroponics in my first rant, by the way, for those rewinding this podcast like I'm about to. I said, I, you know, the future I envision has vertical hydroponic towers. In the so Midwest. explain hydroponics to a five-year-old because you never know who's listening, right, Eli? Yeah, hydro, well, have Evan do that, <laughs> actually. I was about to go right. into it, and then I was like... Break it down, Ev. Hydroponics. Well, I'm, I'm not a fan of hydroponics, so I'll start there. You're not a fan? Yeah. Okay, thank you for the context. Again, this is anti-nature. I'm, I'm very much a, a, an ambassador for the earth, and... Hydroponics is synthesized environment for growing. It usually consists of indoor. Okay. So you're you, no, you don't. The best one of the other great technologies that we have access to is the sun. So let's eliminate that and let's power it with lights, right? So let's start. <laughs> let's work really hard. <laughs> Create super unsustainability. <laughs> we got the sun. Okay, no, don't need you. It comes up every day, but we'll start with lights. <laughs> and then instead of using soil, which is full of life and, and nutrients that that sustains life and plant material, plant growth. Let's forget about all that and create a fake medium that's made out of usually rock wool, which is fiberglass. Super awesome. <laughs> and then plastic. So okay. then you've got all these synthetic mediums together. And then how do we want to fertilize this? Some people, you can use organics, but mostly hydroponics is, a, is an inorganic conventional fertilizer type of thing. So you've got all of the worst of the worst in a box. <laughs> that's, that's one perspective. I'm being really extreme here. Sure, sure. So yeah, there's, there's, there's applications for hydroponics in urban environments. So you said the Midwest, and I would challenge you to that. They've got plenty of land. They've got soil that's like the most beautiful, amazing glacier soil is in the Midwest. They, even though they've depleted about 20 feet of their topsoil, there's still life left. Whereas if you go into an urban environment, we don't have soil. Right. It, it's there. No, that's true. And it's, it's terribly selfish of me. I'm sorry for anyone listening in the Midwest. You're going to get all these emails tomorrow like, yo, why does Steve Bermucci want to put up sky rises with fake meat and fake plants? In our, like, we're good over here. I simply mean I'm envisioning like and I've spent a fair bit of time in the Midwest, but I'm envisioning cornfields 
that are being subsidized right now that would then have these other functions. And I, I do agree with what Evan says. And in fact, like uh, between the two of you, my stances have been softened during this conversation. <laughs> I get so mad when someone says like, oh, that's not natural. Um, because I think my biggest issue is like that we are the unnatural force on this planet. That's that true, that sure. if, there is a, yeah. if there is a force that has been unnatural. And so if we have to use technology to solve how we have fucked everything up, like I don't feel sorry for us is my basic point. I'm only giving hydroponics a hard time as well as some of these other technologies because we haven't yet pushed the boundaries of nature technology. Mm. We've, we've decided that we want to fight a war against nature and that we're going to forget about all of these great technologies, every color, every shape, every texture, every flavor that exists in nature. Don't worry about that. We can synthesize that because we're smart. We run this thing. And I think that's the psyche that bothers me the most is that we think we're in charge. We're not. Right, we're just stewards on this planet, and there's many other there's you know there's many other plants and animals that are that are part of this great kingdom. Um, are, this, are there any yeah. are there any examples of a cross section of agriculture and tech that agriculture and tech that makes sense to you? Are, are there potential applications of like drones monitoring fields? I think I don't. This is not my world, but I would say that somewhere in between, like there's a place for hydroponics. Right, but do we lead with that as the solution? Sure. You know, an elected official came to me recently and said, "I want to put hydroponics on this farm." I said, uh, "Why? Do you realize that this is some of the best fertile soil in all of America, and you want to figure out how to put plastic and synthetic agriculture on this thing?" I'm like, for the sake of saving water, okay. Well, if you want to save water, that's a different conversation. Let's talk about saving water. And it's not just there's not one technology. It's a mm -hmm. there's a planting plan, and there's there's technologies like drip irrigation, and there's crop rotation, and there's diversity that all solve the same challenges. Um, the good analogy I think for us to think about is Steve talked about our water scarcity in Southern California. A lot of people, water managers in cities, they say we need desal, right? Let's go to desal, that's the solution. And then we can, we can have an insatiable amount of water. Why? Because we don't, we can just pull it from the ocean and oh, by the way, it, it costs a ton of money and energy, right? But we don't worry about that, we just have water. But what about the idea of conserving a little bit? What about the idea of harvesting a little bit of rainwater? What about the idea of taking out our lawns and planting native plants or vegetables or fruit trees? What about the idea of all these things? And then go to a desal plant, right? We've exhausted all of our, our creative solutions. We're, uh, there's abundance, there's ecosystems, and we still need a little bit more. Cool, let's scale the system appropriately. And that's where my point is, hydroponics, absolutely where and when it's everything is 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 case by case and it's like that's why this whole conversation of being a human is so challenging is because it's it's every situation so different well, by nature we need it now so the idea of like desalination well it's right there at what point do we know we've exhausted all of our options but when and can, i think that's yeah i mean and are we always are we just do we just give up on humans do we say yeah humans aren't going to conserve any water well i think we almost did that in california but, but we have to remember uh, that these are real money too like the desal idea, yeah, it gets, it's instant, but it's billion dollars, right? right? So what does it take to make incremental change that costs a fraction of that, but that gets us to our outcome in right. a much more holistic way? And you guys are, this is fascinating because we're on a food podcast and we're talking about food auspiciously, <laughs> but we're not really, right? We're talking about like all of humanity because what you two are illustrating is like this very simple crux that I feel like humanity constantly falls into, which is... 
you know what's like a hassle for me is to have a little less water in my toilet which means i can't use like quite as much toilet paper <laughs> and because of that like the flush is kind of slow if i have to clean my toilet an extra time per week because of that like people see that and then they go desal right? <laughs> by the way what evan's talking about is desalination he's talking about taking water from the ocean taking the salt out of it and putting it into the freshwater system which is something that to do at the scale to affect the united states like we would have other questions obviously like you know, there's going to be questions about what that does in the ocean at some point, or at least near the plants, right? At least near the desal plants. So, so I agree with that. And I think that there is this thing, and I'm sure that Evan has come, come up against this a lot, which is like this human laziness, right? At what point do we say, instead of paying tax money for the next 20 years to pay for a desalination plant, I'm going to take three minute showers, but we become but, citizens. I think that's an interesting word we've been playing with a little bit, especially with all this politicking. Yeah, I think be, we're, we're we're losing the idea of being a citizen, which you know, think about it. It wasn't that long ago when we actually cared about our neighbors, and hopefully right. we still do. But that kind of idea that we actually we have awareness of natural resources or these some basic things of of living on this this planet. I I think that's actually a really dope thought to bring it back to lab grown meat because by deciding that we in theory, need one chicken to create zillions of chickens down the line, could we be more detached from the real chicken at that point? Imagine we're hundreds of years into lab-grown meat and do we, we're not dealing with real chickens anymore. That does seem like the utmost of disrespect to it when if there were other ways of getting there. Don't you think like a fake chicken grown in a Petri dish is like more respectful to chickens in general than chopping their heads off and keeping them in <laughs> tiny cages where they're like, like the best, the best chicken in the planet, right? Literally the, I've found this brand at Whole Foods and the yolks are the first yolks I've ever seen that look like chickens kept in someone's house. But the best chicken in the planet it's still a pretty shitty chicken situation. <laughs> like Evan keeps chickens. I know a good farmer. And even yeah. those chickens are like, they're still in a cage. Like it's not that great of a life. It's not yeah, like but they're, they're domesticated animals. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I, I'll concede you that. And I, I, I don't want to go, I don't want to get personal about your chickens, <laughs> but we do certainly know that like but people the, have pets. I mean, that's the crazy thing to me. So, so yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to let that point ride. I'm going to back <laughs> off. I'm going to back off one degree. And we do know this, like cage-free chicken is all the rage now. Cage-free chicken is also causing incredible problems because now that they're not in cages, they're around each other. And if they don't have enough food, there's a phenomenon. I don't know the name of it off the top of my head. Do they eat each other? They, they eat just, each other. There's a pecking order. That's where that word comes from. Oh, yeah, shit. exactly. They but eat each other. Talking- and, and the way they do it is through their vaginas because that is the least defensive. You're tripping. No, I'm not. I'm not. Google this. Wait, what? I'm not. Wait. They, I've been around a lot of chickens. No, but you haven't been around battery-raised chickens where they just lifted the batteries up. This is a real problem that's going on with factory farms that are that raise chickens and do them caged-free but very tight. Is they're attacking each other? And I promise it's happening. Evan doesn't believe me, and it's too bad because I've set him up as such I live an in authority. U- I live in a little utopia. Someone, someone, yeah. Google this. Wait, wait. <laughs> 
I promise chickens are going at each other through their vaginas. So that's the attack point, like a putty on a Power Ranger instead of the the chest, it's the badge. Yeah, that's the soft spot. How do we get towards pasture-raised birds, though? Maybe that's that's our goal. That's my point. Is just I'm simply saying, like, if we could extract chickens from this whole system today because, like, fake fried chicken tasted really good, that seems really respectful to animals to me. Like, that seems good. Yeah, I don't... don't, I think if yeah, there was, if I, it was one or the other, I, if it was, I don't think it's one or the other. That's the thing. Yeah, you know, this is. It's not like we only eat apples, right? You know, and not only, you know, red delicious. You know, we've got still, thank goodness, hundreds of varieties of apples, right? So that's the that's, that's you what guys, we got going you for two us. In, in ten years. <laughs> here are two big points I want to say before. Uh, I could talk about this for a month, but I'm worried that someone's going to give me like the high sign. Here are the two last big points. There's no high sign yet. You you two are still going to get your Evan doesn't eat meat, but you you Eli. I didn't are, even pre- I just wanted to pretend like I, I didn't even ask. Yeah. What your you just know <laughs> you just knew you sensed it. Are you raw vegan? No. I'm, I'm Damn, not. Look at me just judging. Look at me just yeah. judging raw He'll vegan. Cook some food. <laughs> but but Evan so Evan doesn't eat meat. But you will certainly still be able to get your Wagyu beef. And it will still be Wagyu beef that was a living cow, right? Okay. What will happen is that this other product will be selling next to it at the store. And that other product is going to start out being at some price point and, and probably like won't start taking hold until it's really cheap. And it's going to ascend and ascend and ascend. And because of that, our global population of cows is going to go way down to a reasonable place. Yeah, so now, there's a maybe, lot of great things. Maybe yeah. in the meantime, this system that Evan's talking about, which is we need to rely on less meat, we need to have smaller meat portions on our plate. We don't need to eat meat seven days a week like they do in East Texas. All those things can happen too. I will I will tell you that I've spent time in East Texas also <laughs> for Food Beast listeners. I'm, I, I don't I'm, that wasn't that I'm wasn't not a random throw anyone. Yeah. yeah. But I think you're right. I mean, if you look at our the world's not going to shift overnight and this artisan world is growing. Right? This local economy, local agriculture things growing. It'll always be an opportunity. And let's hope it grows and grows and grows and grows. The reality is also that there's a lot of people that are going to continue to eat commodities and processed foods and blah, blah, blah. If we can minimize our impact and do it in a humane way and minimize our carbon footprint on this planet and start battling climate change and all all of a sudden and and eat a product that we think is meat, who cares, right? I mean, I agree with you. Yeah, come full circle. If we can can get lab-grown meat in every Albertsons across the country tomorrow... Well, well, there's no one's going to bat for factory farming, right? And so, if these are alternative solutions that have lower impact, I feel like that was look a at big, you know, look that was at a that big win. I needed a win today. I don't know that I was having a great day, and now I suddenly am. I feel like that was a great moment. Okay, so right, let's that was a, let's say we're there. Okay. We did a step forward. And I speak there. for the small community farmer. Yeah, boom. See, small community farmer. We out the, here now with the petri dish. <laughs> okay, but does that help? What direction does that take our food literacy? Because just in general, people are still so fucking bad at knowing what our food is about. Well, you could imagine how special food becomes then, right? Because right now, food, chicken, we can take chicken. It's the worst case scenario. So it can only get better from here. So this is probably at least one step forward. And we're disconnected from it. So now when we go further and further towards getting rid of nature in that food system. And that's what a hamburger looks like at a McDonald's. Well, then 
kids and we have to reconnect to farming and agriculture. And that's where the growth of the small scale farmer can happen in any community because that's going to be prized. The chicken, the whole animal, that's like what you have on a, maybe a Sunday night. Right? Yeah. Or maybe for some families it only happens on a holiday, but it's like, wow, how special. This can't, Joe gave, we got this really amazing heirloom bird from Joe and it's just cherish the moment. You know, it's, that's, that's not horrible. I'm curious you know? what the branding will look like in 50 years from now, or say 100. Let let it all play I, out. And I, it, I do not think it's going to take 100 years. By the way, you think it's going to take 10 to 20? I I, my I mean, we, I guess there's chicken available my right now. On this is so short that if this conversation goes mega viral and the three of us become hugely famous as commentators about the fake news, here's what I would say to the planet. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, we should have 10, 20, 15 years ago, even we should have been having serious conversations about coal and saying, guys, here's the problem. We don't need coal. Mm. People are going to convince you that they're going to bring your coal jobs back, but we have better energy sources and those jobs are not coming back. Hillary Clinton said that once and she got decimated for it. So she had to pivot her whole strategy about coal and start talking about how, ah, oh, yeah, we'll find a way to get those jobs back when we don't need people under the ground doing it. And this is really sad for coal farmers. I mean, coal, coal miners. I, I get, I get. Well, today that, is a timely day. Right. right? I, Trump's I, executive order that basically tries to pull away a lot of the climate change systems and, and plans that, that Obama put in place and standing at the Oval Office with coal miners. And, and he, what does he care about coal miner? Right. He stands for archaic technology. That's archaic technology. Right. Yeah. It's archaic technology yeah. that we don't need. Right. And I'm telling you right now that there are a ton of ranchers who need to see this writing on the wall right now. They need to understand that if they are not going to get their pension from a ranch, like they need to move into pensionable jobs. You know, that's what happened to coal is that a lot or, of these Or farm holistically. Or farm holistically. And create or, a direct market. Or that's, create the best, most wonderfully taken care of cow that chart, that costs five times what current cows cost. And you do and that. And you buy for Christmas dinner and have on your table. Well, that's why the <laughs> farmer's market is, 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 a, is a valuable community offering for farmers because there's no middlemen. Right. So you can actually make a living now. Right. I don't know what a chicken costs in the store. I've never bought one. They're probably, it's probably pennies. I mean, it's. Don't you love this guy? $10. Disconnected from what a chicken costs in the store. I'm, I'm literally like, I'm just, I, I loved Evan so much when we came into this conversation. I love him about 20 times more now. <laughs> I don't know what a chicken costs. A hundred dollars? I don't know. <laughs> we live in Orange County where everyone drives a car. Evan came here on a train. And I love <laughs> nice. for that. I love that. That's the first experience I got meeting Evan. I'm not even going to ask if you have a car because I assume you do not. I uh, do. Yeah. I have an old farm truck. He has a, he has a farm <laughs> yes. truck. It's beautiful. But he probably drives it very sparingly, which is... Uh, eating me, meat. It's like eating To me is yeah. your whole mantra, which is, is not necessarily, you know... Every movement, I'm going deep. I'm calling my shot to the camera. Right. <laughs> it's very important to, to understand that Martin Luther King would not have been nearly as successful without Malcolm X. The reason that Martin Luther King was so successful as a civil rights leader is because he had Martin, uh, Malcolm X way out in the bushes, way out ahead, slashing at things with a machete. 
And because of that, Martin Luther King was labeled a moderate. Had Malcolm X not existed, Martin Luther King would not have been labeled a moderate. Remember, these are forces that wanted to keep people oppressed, right? So he wouldn't have been labeled a moderate, and the whole system would have ground to a halt or gone a lot more slowly. Evan has a faith in humanity that is beautiful and that I love. And he wants us to self-modulate, which is beautiful and I love. And I want us to do that. But I also think that ecologically, we are going to need a Malcolm X out there who is bushwhacking and saying, sorry, I am not going to have as much faith in humanity as Evan. Y'all motherfuckers need to stop having kids. Or you need to stop eating meat, period, for a year. Whatever happened till to we first. Can, Till we can recalibrate. You know, we need something like yeah. that is what I'm saying. Like we need some radicals to to help push this movement ahead. My fear with, with you know, Evan, who, whose ecology center I'm so in love with, is that it would be so shockingly effective if we had 4 billion people on this planet even. I just worry that with population sky, skyrocketing, that at some point we're going to bash right through the, the beautiful world that he and his cohorts are building. Why? That's my fear ecologically. And, and it does come down to me. And that's why I keep saying, no, let's have all the fake meat we want. Let's build giant high rises full of vertical hydroponics because they don't lose water. Let's all of my solutions come from this fear that we are running out of time to slowly correct ourselves. And we're not showing the motivation to do it quickly enough. Right. I mean, because even I love the idea of extremists here to, to prove a point and to get out there. I mean, but so would PETA would be an extreme, but don't they co-sign the whole idea of, of lab grown meat? They're all about the lab grown meat because it doesn't have any animal involved. They don't care about the science of it. They don't care about the ecology of it even. Right. They're like, there's no animal involved. PETA is a great thing about PETA that, that Evan probably doesn't know that you, I'm sure, do know. Anytime you mention PETA's name in any article, and I guarantee this podcast they will email you and tell you what they thought of you saying their name. Literally, they are like the obsessive internet commenter of the planet. I have gotten... <clears throat> Peter hates least, food beasts. Let's put it out there. So yeah, I, I'd like to talk about them once in, in a respectful <laughs> manner and, and try to understand the plight and, and their their mission, whatever, you know, in yeah, terms of... Yeah, I mean, this doesn't that, use food. PETA, PETA is on board. Everything they've stated so far about lab-grown meat has been... We like it. There's no animal involved. So, I mean, at the end, though, how do we solve, like, at the end of the day, how are we going to try and solve this problem at the point in the universe that we're at, the point on planet Earth that we're at, right? So, tech, I feel like what you're leaning towards is tech has to be a part. And what you're leaning towards is that we might be able to handle this holistically without, without these means. And it's somewhere in between, you know, truth okay. lies somewhere in between. I'm on one end, she's on one end. And we're, I think where we start to, th like you, what I just came to my mind when you said, okay, well, how do we do this? Well, we probably just have to start making decisions that are beneficial for more than ourselves. So the idea of the lab grown meat is, is, has that criteria of decision-making, which is that cause no unnecessary harm or cause less harm, right? Cause less impact, get rid of yeah. factory farming. So that fills up, fix that box, and it might fit a couple other boxes. My strategy of more a holistic ecosystem development also fits those boxes, but then there's many other strategies in between. Sure. But it's like, how do we as humans just start to say, let's, let's, we're all in this together. 
right? And it's not, not about politics. This is actually about being human. We need to eat. We care about natural resources. We're going to be here for a little bit. Let's, let's, let's hope so. Yeah, let's hope so. Right. So I think that the, to me, that's kind of where we, we try to, you know, I, I define sustainability as giving more than we take. So that means something different for everyone, but it just means that we're not raping and pillaging. Yeah. I hope that, I hope that mantra can actually live with someone in Silicon Valley. I hope like, I like to make fun of Silicon Valley. I like to shit on them. It's just a bunch of white dudes in a room that are trying to solve a lot of problems that may not even exist that like, but the idea of, I don't want to name anyone, but I'm here. Like, what if a major corporation that we all use had like a solution for this, but they're just maybe waiting to announce it or waiting to find out how to monetize something like this because how, how do you get silicon valley involved let's say they were actually helpful in some capacity maybe there is a technology that could respect a small farmer that could respect these like disparate parts of the land but they're just waiting because obviously silicon valley driven by the money so what is how could they line their pockets and help the earth and that's the idea of your mantra that you're mentioning is like how do you give more than you take or balance that out? Shit, hopefully one day a billionaire big enough decides that this is like good for us. Um, I'm curious. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. And, 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 and again, on my end of the spectrum, it's there's not going to be a rich person that's going to solve this for us. It's hopefully the millions of farmers that are left that are going to say, let's let's be better stewards and let's connect direct to consumer. Like let's create the best quality food that we can. And and bring it to people and see if we can grow that because if there's we're losing farmers and so if we can build economic viability around creating you know growing and and stewarding good food then that industry will grow so Evan, yeah what if a rich person becomes a farmer a lot of rich people do become farmers i know a lot of them and you know it's, it's great because what's the the luxury that they have is that they get to model the solutions to the extreme mm-hmm. so they really get to push the perspective that I'm sharing and I've seen some of these farms <coughs> and we need those models. I mean, that's what the ecology center is. It's also a model for us to see visually, to taste, to touch and to, to experience what it means to live in abundance. Right. So again, it's not the ecology center isn't a place. It's an idea. Right. And, but at least we have to, we got to have more models, you know, not only models models is just the starting place, but we have to have a little bit of awareness because not everyone on this you know, around us is creative thinkers. So they can't just imagine something when you say it to them. So you have to show them. You have to t- let them taste it. You know, this, talking to Chef Bryce the other day, you know, first thing he says, just taste it. You don't have to like it. Just taste it. New yeah. texture, new flavor, new color. Right? And that's, that's sort of the thing. Like, our, that's what we're trying to model. Positive solutions. So what did we learn today? We might still be fucked. <laughs> but there's some good things out there that we might be able to work towards. Right? But regardless yeah, of how I you feel. I actually feel very reassured. I was in a very bleak place yeah, yeah. when I came in and <laughs> I saw this as the only solution. I think what you two turned me on to is this idea of a, of a multiple systems solution mm-hmm. and saying, you know, we're going to need a little bit of this. We're going to need a little bit of this. We're going to need a little bit of this. And hopefully, you know, some of these part of that is going to be people converting their own habits. That is certainly like the easiest solution to look over. The solution that Evan talks about and and beats the drum of every day is the easiest one to look over because it's our least favorite as humans, which is I have to compromise something like I I have to tweak my behavior in the smallest possible way. 
I would like, argue also that that's that's not my intended angle. Is that actually that it's not a compromise, and that what I'm promoting is abundance versus scarcity. Right. I just mean like you know, not leaving the fucking sink on when you brush your teeth. I just feel like that's a huge compromise. <laughs> but but it's not right. It's the smallest. I'm giving you a hard time. Yeah. Smallest tweak of yeah. behavior. But I feel like. I feel like that's like the last thing that people do. I feel like the first thing that people do is like, we need to desalinate water. Right. Or hundreds I, of millions of people can use a little bit less water. Well, that's the social media too, is that we all think we're so important. You know, oh, I, these resources are all for me, right? I don't give a damn about what's downstream. I don't care about, the, it, a little bit of that egocentrism is is starting to get a little bit too much. But social could also be our last saving grace because I think the one thing I do have faith in is in conversations like these and being able to understand and share the information that we are fucked if we keep going down this route. Uh, down this I hope route. so. I mean, I'd like to see millennials get more engaged in conversations that matter, right? So there's a lot of conversations that don't matter that are out there. Like, sure. I don't know what it th- it's like most. There's yeah. a lot of nothingness and it's wasted energy. It's wasted time. I would be so psyched if we could somehow rally young people to be advocates and activists for positive things. Everyone can choose a passion, but it's ultimately say something that matters with people that care. Just, just stand for something and stand sure. for what, but that's, I think there's, there is a disconnect between how social is used now and what the possibility is. Sure. And I think, I think where I would just stand for the shit of it just on the side of social is that for in the past, we would be having these stupid, uninformed, unproductive conversations about what we liked on TV, but it was in our own circles. Right. And so if we, that's a bunch of bad things that we would talk about, but it would just be subjugated to a house that didn't, wasn't connected to the rest of the world. We at least have the possibility in our day and age to rally over social and rally over an idea that we're using too much water. Ideas can move quickly. That's nice. Good ideas and bad ideas. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you a good sign in all that. Like, here's my, my biggest belief about humanity. If you want to do something positive, there is only one way to do it. And, and it is to make it cool, right? Evan, a big part of Evan's job is, and, and I feel like I can say this with some authority, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it, the Ecology Center is, a big part of what they do is PR for ecology. Like they're the public relations firm representing the planet, essentially, <laughs> right? That's, I like the way they put that. So- I change your mask head real quick. So, yeah. but here's the, here's the we interesting thing. We think of ourselves as a creative studio, but- Here's the well. here's the interesting thing, is that the Ecology Center is cool. Sure. I've seen Kelly Slater at events that Evan threw. I've seen he's doing an event with another famous pro surfer and his model wife next month, right? I've seen last week I was at the Ecology Center and there was a senator, or I mean a, a woman who ran for senator. She was the youngest woman to run for senator, and she got. You know, she was a huge viral sensation this entire year. She got six million views on a story for Uproxx. Wow. She she's a fascinating woman, right? Yeah. She was speaking to a group of twenty people at Evan Center, and so what I'm saying is, ecology and sustainability and the kind of artisan agrarian lifestyle has somehow become cool again. You know, like the coolest guy in the room is no longer the guy like with the best technology 
it's we know who the coolest guy in the room today is and it's clearly the long-haired dude who came on the train like he is the coolest and and it's because he has this value that everyone in our culture right now is aspiring to collectively and because of that like if there was something that gave me hope today it was actually evan talking his line and sticking to his line and i think you it resonating with you and me realizing okay my little thing about fake meat is going to happen like that fake meat is coming there's nothing that's going to stop that freight train i promise you that i know i've i've written about food long enough to know that but it's not going to be the only thing and i will concede that and it's it's going to be supported by these really cool movements that that evan's been talking with us about and that you have clearly been on board with and i think that that's awesome right future is abundant yeah it's a, it's abundant with through multiple systems <laughs> future is abundant what a button on this whole thing that's what's up everyone tell us what's going on at the ecology center before we wrap anything cool coming up yeah we were launching a book okay it's called community table recipes uh-huh. for an ecological food future so it's part cookbook part toolkit dope okay so we, utility behind it yeah we spent some time over the last two years really engaged with amazing farmers chefs fishermen winemakers and sort of the the depths of the conversations that we're having in their in their spaces and um learning quite a bit about what it means to build an ecological food community and um and we've been hosting these beautiful celebratory dinners called green feasts and community table over the last eight years but this document over the last two years and we'll put it all in a book and so it's again there's recipes with all-star chefs um locally and internationally and then rock star farmers. I mean, farmers are the rock stars, in my opinion. So really amazing people that are stewarding school gardens. Right. Uh, local farmers throughout Southern California, great fishermen. Um, so, yeah, it's, that's a Kickstarter that we launched. and That's dope. We'll have a link in the, in the yeah. iTunes and in, uh, in our Facebook. We'll shout that out. Yeah, that's awesome. Appreciate that. That's awesome. So, yeah, we're, I mean, we're, we're an education center, so we're really about modeling this conversation yep. in real life. Right? So we like to really put the people that are doing the real work, walking the talk farmers and, sh- and also the chefs and put them together and celebrate that yeah. and break bread and, and ultimately see what conversations come from that. So I'd, there's a bunch of dinners coming up and I'd love to team up with you guys further and get, you, yeah. get you to the farm. There it is. Maybe, maybe a little uh, three-way, a little, little up rocks action. Hey, and, and thank you. Thank you, Steve, for not only just giving us some of the best WWE coverage in the world, but also spreading some good shit. The up rocks is content. Is, is, is real. It's always been dope, but it's a little bit more than that internet nothingness that we all strive for. So uh, yeah, even your, your, your article and your stance here on the Lab Girl Me, I really appreciate it as a fun read. Thanks for making it not boring. That's I appreciate it. that. Yeah. I, I mean, I hope to bring some nuance back to conversation. It's, it, it, and that's my goal so often with writing. And yeah. today you guys brought nuance back into my life. So I appreciate it. Thank you all. Yes. Costa, thank you. Bray, thank you. For all the amazingness. This has been the catch up. Thank you. Um, subscribe and leave everyone's social in uh, the iTunes description. And then maybe we'll be on next week. We have a thing here where we always do the worst intros and the worst outros. So this is up to par. <laughs> <laughs> Until next week, guys, please leave us a review in the iTunes store and tell us uh, what you liked and what you didn't like. And if you want Steve Reb back or not. <laughs>
Or if you want me to get off this fucking podcast, that'd be awesome. <laughs> All right, bye, guys. We know what they're going to want. Yeah. Save the earth. No one's going to save more Steve, less Evan. Everyone's going to be like, yo, get rid of that Steve guy. Double yeah, up true. on Evan. <laughs> uh, that's the end of our show. <laughs>